New Zealand is leading the world with groundbreaking research to try to counter appalling rates of child abuse. A template is being built using government-held data, which is primarily about the parents, to try to predict which children are most likely to be harmed. But as this Radio New Zealand Insight program has been finding out, the plan also raises difficult questions about the right to privacy and the types of unintended consequences of this type of profiling. On average, one New Zealand child is killed by a member of their family every five weeks. Welcome to Child, Youth and Family. Please listen carefully to the following two options. To speak to a Child, Youth and Family staff member, press 1. For our residential and every year, Child, Youth and Family takes about 150,000 calls from people worried about a child. Just over 20,000 turn out to be cases of actual abuse or neglect. If you are grown up, it's really important you listen for a minute. Every day, Kiwi kids are being hurt and not looked after properly. All you adults do is talk about it. But imagine if it was possible to do away with the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff and predict who might hurt their children before it's even happened. Indications from government-commissioned research which profiles parents to try to find out if they're more likely to harm their children is fairly accurate. But is there a line between doing everything that can be done to protect the young and the individual's right to privacy? When calling for ideas from the public on how to stop child abuse, the then Social Development Minister Paula Bennett asked New Zealanders just that. We've written a green paper on children. It deals with uncomfortable issues. It poses some pretty hard questions. It asks you what you would give up so that vulnerable children come first. Are you willing for all children to be tracked at birth, for example? How do you want neighbours... I'm Teresa Cowie, and this insight looks at whether the information age might help or hinder New Zealand's quest to end child abuse. time when we can make change. And it's easier to do something. Go to the website. In 2012, as part of its crusade against child abuse and following recommendations from the White Paper for Vulnerable Children, the national government commissioned groundbreaking research to try to find out if information it already holds about citizens could be used to indicate whether a child might be maltreated. The work is the first of its type and it's being closely followed by international researchers. An economics professor, Rima Vaithiyanathan, led the Auckland University study which scoured the data held by work and income and child, youth and family. The research later added in details from births, deaths and marriages, corrections and some information from hospital records. The study finally narrowed down its results to a tick box of about 13 indicators. The scientist then looks at the list and works out a number between 1 and 20 called a risk score. A 1 is for those deemed to be a low risk of hurting their child, while a score of 20 indicates a very high risk. So we can go and show you the data lab where we get, have access to date, confidential data um, which links all these parental and children's characteristics through the government administration systems. Professor Vaithiyanathan now works at the Auckland University of Technology and down the corridor from her office taped to a laminate blue door is a very serious looking yellow warning sign. Stop! Exclamation mark. Statistics New Zealand authorised access only. So what is in here? So this is what we call the data lab. Um, 
basically what's in here is two computers and the computers have direct access to Statistics New Zealand servers and the Ministry of Social Development put the data that links up all these various administrative data systems uh, onto the server. And The data uh, held behind the door is anonymous, but security is so tight I'm still not allowed to go in because if I piece together any information I saw, I might be able to figure out who someone is if I already knew them. So what kinds of information might red flag a potential child abuser? Professor Vaithyanathan goes through the list. The risk criteria that are used is things like incarceration history of mum and dad, whether they've ever had prescription drugs for treatment of alcohol and drugs, whether they've had any services they've used which is alcohol and drug related, whether they've ever had a disability benefit where one of the reasons for disability was alcohol and drug dependency. Then we'd look at was mum or dad herself a victim of child abuse when she was young. We look at mum's single status, whether she has lots of other children under three, whether it's one of twins, because we know that you know multiple births and a lot of children, young children in the household increase stress for parents, whether the man in the household was a non-biological father how long that family might have been on a benefit as a sign of poverty. We also looked in our study on where they whether they lived in a particularly poor neighbourhood. But how accurate in forecasting child abuse is this list of parental experiences? There's a, all kinds of statistical measures of accuracy. The general definition of accuracy is called area under the rock curve, which is sort of a summary statistic of how accurate these kinds of screening tools are. So it's more accurate than a mammogram, for example, for an asymptomatic woman. According to the referees, more accurate than any other tool they've seen before for predicting children who will end up being maltreated. It's got an area under the rock curve of 84%, which is reasonably accurate. Of the top 1% of children at risk, 42% were found to have been maltreated by the age of five. But in another part of Auckland, doctors from the National Children's Hospital Starship say that's not accurate enough. Dr Patrick Kelly is a paediatrician and the clinical director of the hospital's child abuse unit. We are involved with police and child youth and family on a daily basis trying to make collaborative decisions about risk. And so I'm very familiar with the deficiencies of risk assessment. And I just think that if you're going to introduce a tool like this based on population data into, into frontline practice, there's a real serious risk of unintended consequences, modifying people's behaviour. As I interview him, he's pressed for time. He's fielding calls from various hospital staff and a patient's relative. He must have thousands of patients, so I ask him why he gives out his personal number. He replies guardedly that the child may be at risk. If anyone wants to stop child abuse before it happens, he does. But he says while the prediction tool seems tempting, it could harm families who are picked up incorrectly. If you take this tool on a wider perspective, the even bigger question is, what's the benefit you're going to offer? So let's take this group 
of 5% who are at highest risk. 30% of them will have substantiated child maltreatment by the age of 5, 70% will not. That means that for every 10 families at risk in that particular category of this tool, seven of the kids were never going to come to harm. So you need an intervention that is going to reduce or eliminate the risk in the three out of 10 who are going to come to harm and cause no harm to the seven out of 10 who are never going to come to harm. Dr Kelly says there's also a risk that labelling a family with a number and then passing that number on to their social worker could skew the social worker's own professional judgement of how that family's doing. Well, if you're going to add this to what the social worker is doing, you are essentially going to be modifying that social worker's behaviour. And you don't know in what way you're going to be modifying it. Will they make better decisions? Will they make worse decisions? Well, who knows? So if, if you're going to be adding a new process to the way they think, you have an obligation to research it properly. And by properly, he means a randomised control trial, where one group of at-risk families would get extra services to head off child abuse and another wouldn't. He believes this would be the only true way to put the model to the test. I mean, when I teach doctors about child protection... One of my opening statements is always to say child protection really isn't in the end just about risk. You can take 100 families and put them in the room and they'll all share the same variables around poverty, substance abuse, mental health, and yet most of them will not be abusing their children. So just to assume that because someone has this particular um, variable in their lives they're going to abuse their children um, is actually stigmatising families. And this model essentially runs the risk of doing exactly that. Ultimately, though, he doesn't want the data to be used and says even if the predictions were absolutely correct, how would a social worker act on something that hasn't happened anyway? Dr Irene DeHaan from the University of Auckland is one of the social work academics involved in the predictive modelling research. So how might social workers approach parents with the potentially unwelcome news? and what sorts of services could be offered to someone who hasn't done anything wrong. There would be a final resource centre in every local area and people would feel comfortable enough to go and ask for help. Um, and we have some centres like that, but we don't have enough of them and they're not evenly distributed around the country. So if we were going to do some kind of offer of support to people, is that... It would need to be introduced by someone that they already trusted and possibly they would need to know that people were worried about them. Dr DeHaan says she's undecided about whether families should actually be told if they have a high risk score or whether they'd be better off just being helped without knowing it. In Porirua, 35-year-old Michael and his partner are bringing up their four children. When I meet him, he's waiting in the car outside work and income, entertaining the children, while his partner gets on with some paperwork inside. He's a builder by trade. He had a stint on the sickness benefit for 18 months after he injured his back. In the past, he's spent time in prison. He's also not the birth father of two of their children, and he was getting a benefit in the first two years of their youngest son's life. For Michael, these factors could potentially paint him as a high-risk parent, but he says if social workers approached him with offers of help, he'd run a mile. My family's got nothing to do with them. I don't beat my children and 
Yeah. So, so in, for you, actually, it would it would not help if they knew all this information about you. You you would be less likely to want to engage with them. Oh, I wouldn't want anything to do with them anyway. <laughs> and that's just not my thing. Would yeah. you feel really offended if they? I would. Yeah. Yeah. What would you have to say to them? I don't know. Spare of the moment thing, probably. Probably wouldn't be nice. <laughs> and what if the approach was nice, though? What if they presented it in a nicer way? I'd say, well, here's my bank account. Put the money in there. <laughs> if you want to help, give me money. <laughs> Professor Vaithia Nathan says while on the face of it, it could put families off, she believes that's not a reason to drop the idea before thinking through how it could be better presented to those who might need it. It's completely reasonable that these families don't want to engage, but it doesn't undermine the fact that the parents are only a gatekeeper to the child. So there are rights of the child we have to be concerned about as well. So there is a kind of a fine balancing between the rights of the parents to say no, the rights of the child for a safe environment, and how we play that out in a, in a community where privacy has become, I think, more paramount than the interests of the child, is what this kind of modelling brings to the fore. We need to re-engage that debate. An Otago University senior social work lecturer, Dr Emily Cadell, says this is one of many potential unintended consequences of using official data to profile people in this way. She thinks families labelled as high risk could avoid using social services or edit the information they do give to take the heat off their family. Dr Cadell says even though all parents' data would be screened, it's mostly beneficiaries who would be picked up because more of their information is on the government systems. Professor Vaithia Nathan admits this is a weakness of the model. And Dr Cadell says because beneficiaries are at the bottom of the heap, it's likely there'd be less of an outcry if their privacy is invaded in the name of protecting children. It sets up a, a rights hierarchy, if you like. Like some people are entitled to their full rights and full protection of, of those rights, while others, because they are high risk as determined by a statistical model, uh, it's okay to override their rights. Even though at that point, remember, they, these people have done nothing wrong. They have merely been defined as high risk by a statistical model based on administrative data about them. So, you know, there's some slippery ground there in terms of what we think as a society is, is okay and how rights are protected. Here my baby boy. You wanna go home now, wanna catch the bus? Hey? Or should we go get something to eat? Richard Nemia is 25 years old and he and his partner have four children between them. He's out running some errands with his 18-month-old son who's all rugged up in the pushchair. He's on the dole and he and his partner have just welcomed a new baby. Richard has had a baby while he's on the benefit, has two young children close together and started his family young. According to the model, some of those factors would put him at a higher risk of harming his children. For those people that you know do abuse their kids, it could be a good thing, but you know, for the people that are getting accused of doing it and they, you know, they have, they're not like that. I think that's pretty unfair that the government has the right to do that when you know that's your personal information and that should be for you and your case manager that you work with and it should be for no one else, you know. Uh, I just, because I, I, 
I was pretty naughty when I was younger, but when I started having kids, I, you know, I changed for, for the better for my kids so that they didn't see me down, going down a bad road. And I just think that it's going to be a big problem for families that have had criminal histories and stuff and changed, you know, for the better of their kids. And when I tell him that being a stepdad to his partner's children would suggest he's more of a risk, he's hurt. He's going to say I'm bad for taking in my partner's son and making him my own, you know. I don't see how that's right. <laughs> I want to be there for him and he needs me because he's got no other dad, you know, figure in his life, so I'm his dad. <laughs> Mr Nemia says he understands the intention is good, but says it's unfair to single out parents who are doing their best after a difficult start in life. At the work and income offices in central Wellington, dozens of people pass in and out of the automatic doors, watched over by a security guard. From outside, beneficiary advocate Kay Brereton and I look in as the clients fill in forms and scour the computer system for jobs. Every one of them is handing over information about themselves in exchange for social services. Kay Brereton says, as a group, beneficiaries will be even more stigmatised if the model is used. The researchers who developed it, they've done it with the best intentions at heart and they really believe that they've developed a tool which is going to help children. And I, I can see that, but at the same time what this tool can also do is it can make the rest of the population think that beneficiaries are the ones who are responsible for child abuse. And we've already got some laws that suggest to us that beneficiaries are drug users on the run from the law, not putting their children into early childcare, not looking after them properly. And so what worries me is that the negative impact that doing something like this has on how people view beneficiaries. OK, but they've expanded the area that they'll be collecting data on, and they'll be collecting data on everyone. So why are you particularly worried about beneficiaries? because they've already got a hard, stressful life and there's the real potential that this tool can turn up people who haven't done anything wrong but have now got a whole lot more stress in their lives and a whole lot more to try and deal with when all they're trying to do is be good parents. Kay Brereton says children from richer families who are at risk of abuse will be missed because the government holds less data on them. And there's also concern that because many Māori families use social services, they could be unfairly singled out too. Professor Tim Dare is the head of philosophy at the University of Auckland. In 2012, he did an ethics review of Professor Vaithyanathan's predictive risk modelling research. At the time, he raised the issue of Māori stigmatisation, but thinks it could be minimised if it's handled well. So what we have to do is think of ways to address the stigma. Now, my sense is that um, there are various ways you can do that. And one, again, there's just a practical matter of, of trying to limit the um, dissemination of the information. So making sure that the information is only available to, to social workers who are, who are properly trained. Um, and for people who noticed would already be looking at this information, albeit without this particular detail. The other thing you might do is make sure that people realise that this is just a risk profiling, so you're not, it's not like a conviction. These are people who you assume have done nothing because what you're doing is predicting risk in the future. Um, so you have to make sure your interventions with them are positive and not punitive. And you might sh make sure that the tool wasn't misused for other purposes, so um, 
that it was it was solely used within this professional context with people making judgments in, in order to make sure that people are getting the help they need. Now, those are all, in a way, band-aid. You'll never be able to eliminate um, all of the risk of stigmatisation. And, and so in all of these cases, the most important ethical issue, I think, is just balancing up what are the possible benefits of the tools against the risks. Professor Dare says it should be completely voluntary for families to take extra help if they want it. My own view is that the predictive risk modelling isn't the stigmatising step, really. You know, a lot of what we already do um, has these problems. And, and if one thing that comes out of this is that we think about the ways our other interactions with these populations are stigmatising, that may be a good thing. The general manager responsible for overseeing this at the Ministry of Social Development is Dorothy Adams. We did look very carefully at uh, overrepresentation of Māori in our modelling. By doing separate models for Māori, we were able to control for that overrepresentation. So that allowed us just to look at Māori separately to make sure that we weren't being overrepresented in, in the population-wide modelling, if you like. We're very conscious of that, very conscious, and I think that's one of the real reasons we've, we've not moved really quickly into to putting this model into production and into operations, because I still think there are some things we need to work through, understand, and have others come with us on that as well, because that, that's just been a key question we've been asked all the way through and how we are managing that, if you like. In the three years since the research began, the Ministry's been fairly cagey about its progress, uploading the research documents quietly onto its website only after I requested them in May. We are trying to be as transparent as we can. You know, We, we will happily do radio interviews. We, we are publishing everything we're doing so that, um, and some of it is very technical, but so that if people want to interact with it and understand what we're doing, they can documents, there wasn't really an announcement that they were put on your website and a couple of academics I've spoken to have said that they have been wondering where is this research, it's been going on for four, five they years. Did, they didn't know about um, it. They were saying it didn't feel like there was a real flow of information so Look, have I'll be you honest, been we holding were, back, have you been we worried was, about the public perception of it? No. I, look we were slow to release them, I know that, um, but we did let a very wide group of people know that we have released them, but um, but no, we are definitely trying to be transparent in what we're doing. Yep. So what next for this groundbreaking but controversial research? At this stage, the Ministry of Social Development is shying away from using the tool proactively, meaning it probably won't use it before it's notified by someone that a child might be in danger. But Dorothy Adams says it's still possible it could be used before a parent has done anything. Its most recent phase of research is happening now at the National Child, Youth and Family Call Centre in Auckland, where social workers log and assess reports of child abuse. We really need to understand the relationship between the information that comes out of a model and what impact that has on a decision maker, so in this case a social worker. So that's what we want to test next. So, so how are you going to do that? You said there are two ways. Yeah. So the first thing we're going to do is we're in the process of doing this now is we're developing a set of guidelines and training materials for anybody who might use uh, the information coming out of the predictive model and we will test that training information and guidance with social workers to see whether it resonates what works and also we need to look at what information we might give a decision maker so for example 
do we just give them a score mm. or do we give them the score plus what makes up the score or do we need to give them a lot more context than that? So we need to kind of understand what's the optimal information we can give to really improve decision making. So that's the first test. The second test we're going to do is we produce some case studies. So we'll have some social workers who will be given those case studies and nothing else, and we'll ask them to make a decision about what they would have done in that situation with that child and family. Then we'll have another group of social workers where they will have the same case studies, but they'll also have information produced out of the predictive model and the training and the guidance, and then we'll look at what decisions they make based on that information, and we'll look at the differences in decision-making to see what differences we got between those two groups. But Professor Rima Vaithiyanathan is frustrated by the ministry's watered-down approach to using this world-leading research. When I go to the US now, it's called the New Zealand model, you know, yeah. so it's sort of, it's, it's fantastic in a way, but when I come home and see how, how we're not progressing with it, it's also a bit frustrating. Do you think MSD is feeling that pressure a bit then, being a world leader, you don't want to muck it up? Yeah, I think that that's quite right. And I, I, it's the implementation. There's lots of downside risks if you're a public agency. You're implementing stuff in the full glare of the public spotlight. So I completely understand, but my role as a researcher is to try to push us to the forefront because I always say in things like child abuse, if you do what we did last year, we'll have what we had last year. If we're happy with what we had last year, let's do it, but otherwise we've got to try new things. She says the ministry needs to be bold and use this valuable tool to its full potential. In a way, it's unethical not to explore tools that could reduce child abuse. For now, the responsibility for deciding whether protecting children trumps the right to privacy and whether profiling parents could have unintended consequences lies with the researchers at the Ministry of Social Development. Results on their trials to see if it should be used will be released at the end of the year. I'm Teresa Cowie and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this program, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is rnz underscore insight.